This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host Glenn Ford. Coming up, what do the AIDS and COVID-19 epidemics have in common? Both diseases were much more deadly to Black Americans than to whites. We'll discuss the racist reasons for these high Black death rates. And after hundreds of years on American shores, Black people are still fighting for basic human rights. We'll talk with a Black astrophysicist who says we all have the right to know the universe. But first, Chicago is arguably ahead of most heavily Black cities in two arenas of racial struggle, the fight for community control of police and the long battle for reparations. Toussaint Lozier is a professor of Afro-American studies at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst but he earned his PhD at the University of Chicago and has long experience as an activist in that city. Lozier is author of a recent article titled, A Human Right to Reparations, Black People Against Police Torture and the Roots of the 2015 Chicago Reparations Ordinance. He's well acquainted with the young Black Chicago activists that told a United Nations agency in Geneva that the United States is guilty of genocide against black people. The fact that the U.S. State Department sent a number of officials to that particular U.N. hearing really demonstrated the seriousness with which the government was attempting to take that issue. But I think even more importantly, the actions that those young people took, and these are young activists with a group called We Charge Genocide, the actions that they took would be even more profound because they really helped open the way to pushing forward a set of local legislative outcomes that resulted in some form of apology and reparations for the long legacy of police torture in Chicago. And part of what I was interested in with some of the scholarship that I did was trying to both highlight the backstory, the organizing, and the the activism that made these young people's demonstration possible in a number of ways, really the history of taking efforts around police torture in Chicago to the United Nations that sort of established a strategy that these young people helped to carry out, but also tried to point to the broader significance of trying to use the international arena in the late 20th and 21st century as an arena of struggle what that could mean for both issues of human rights abuses related to policing, as well as broader demands for some sort of reparative justice for people of African descent, what that could look like, how we could draw out some lessons from this long-running campaign against police torture that's been taking place in Chicago from the 1980s, and that resulted in some pretty amazing outcomes in and around 2015. Yes, a Recharge Genocide campaign was launched in 1949. Uh, Paul Robeson was deeply involved in that. 
And then more recently, Malcolm X urged black folks not to rely on U.S. law and civil rights complaints, but to take the case to international forums. It's an approach that really has a long history in the struggle of people of African descent in the United States. I mean, there's some who take that approach to using the international arena all the way back to efforts by Frederick Douglass speaking overseas in Great Britain or Ida B. Wells' anti-lynching campaign to really trace out the ways in which that's been a long-standing approach to kind of dealing with issues that we face here in the United States, not just as domestic issues, but international issues, human rights issues. And I really, in terms of trying to make sense of this, leaned on scholars like Carol Anderson and Gerald Horn, who really highlighted the way that that that's become really a neglected aspect of not only how people make sense of Black history, but also how activists today think about the kind of tools that are at their disposal in terms of trying to figure out how to address, again, what are often looked at as just sort of domestic issues. Let's talk about those tools. U.S. police and prisons routinely use practices that in international venues would be called torture, but U.S. police and other official agencies don't admit that their practices amount to torture. Yeah, and it's actually the focus and really the impact of international observers, experts, that have actually had some consequence in terms of helping local activists identify those practices as as torture. So we can look at things ranging from the use of solitary confinement, which international experts have uh, routinely identified as torture and routinely highlighted the kind of institutionalization, in some instances, kind of industrialization of solitary confinement here in the United States as a rampant use of torture And this is, again, not simply things that are taking place overseas, but taking place in maximum security facilities, super maximum security facilities. But also more specifically, I was interested in how activists in Chicago use the international human rights framework to name a practice in Chicago where you had police officers not just simply beating up suspects, but electroshocking them, suffocating them, really instrumentalizing torture that by some accounts had been learned during the course of the Vietnam War and then they're brought back here to the United States, used international mechanisms as a way to name what was taking place as torture, and then even went beyond that and used international forums as a way to get a hearing on those practices and really pressure U.S. officials to provide some degree of accountability for that rampant use of torture, which really in Chicago took place from the late 1970s all the way up to the early 1990s. Yes, in Chicago, you had a police facility that actually acted as a kind of torture central. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really one of the ways that this sort of approach to thinking international about what's oftentimes considered a local issue is really important because in Chicago, there was this long-running campaign around identifying the practice of torture 
related to John Burge, who started off as a police detective and rose all the way up to a commander within the Area 2 district and associating practices that he either carried out directly or were carried out by detectives under his supervision, nicknamed the Midnight Crew. These were officers who routinely practiced not just torture, but using torture as a means to get suspects to confess the crimes they didn't commit. And those confessions, those forced confessions were used to put numerous individuals, numerous Black men on death row. And there was a fair amount of celebration over the fact that because of this use of the international arena to bring attention to this issue, John Burge was not only fired, but eventually convicted of perjury. And in 2015, the city of Chicago passed a police torture reparations ordinance and apologized for this practice of torture. But one of the ways in which In some ways, we might need to wonder if that victory was short-lived, is that over the past several years, there have been new allegations around a police site at Holman Square on the west side as being another place in which this torture is again being practiced, and that suspects are being held incommunicado, are being forced into, if not confessing the crimes, at least providing police with information because of, again, these violations of their basic human rights. Now, some folks criticize the internationalizing route as not resulting in actual progress on the ground back here in the United States. But you, in your article, seem to be saying that the availability of this international route reinvigorates or can reinvigorate a local struggle when it goes up against the dead ends and brick walls that are erected by local police and other officials. Yeah, that's exactly what I think played out in Chicago. And this an insight that I really got from Gerald Horn, who really consistently made a point of highlighting the kind of international framework in which our struggle plays out. And in Chicago, there really was this gap between when news about this sort of rampant use of police torture under John Burge came to light and he was forced to retire. And when, more than a decade later, we have the protests by We Charge Genocide and a kind of a, a new round of a really an upsurge of protests around police torture that results in this reparations ordinance in 2015. And part of what I really tried to highlight was In this kind of gap, you had work by folks associated with this organization called Black People Against Police Torture, led by attorney Standish Willis, longtime activists like Patricia Hill, that it was their effort to not just deal with the issue of police torture and raise awareness about it, but really internationalizing it, that helped to kind of not just reinvigorate the struggle, but put increasing pressure on both federal and local officials in a way that created breakthroughs and made it possible to really see some of the outcomes that resulted some years later. I think the bigger lesson from this history is that taking that international approach can really bear fruit, really can help not just reinvigorate a struggle, but also the sort of pressure that's brought to bear on levels of government, whether that's the federal level, whether it's the local level, whether that can 
actually kind of open up some gaps and create new inroads at moments where things seem insurmountable, when it seems like there's actually very few avenues to progress forward. And you stress the importance of bringing what you call Black thought leadership to the forefront in these kinds of struggles. Tell me about that term, Black thought leadership. Yeah, it's really an approach to prioritizing the insights that Black activists had in terms of not only drawing on the lessons that have been kind of compiled, that have been that have aggregated through what some refer to as the Black radical tradition, but really ensuring that demands, the kind of approaches that Black organizers are most likely to kind of want to put on the table, that that's really key. And again, in this particular case of Chicago, I look to the example of folks like Sanders Willis, who is an attorney, but before that had been a a labor organizer, a community activist for decades, that his approach to dealing with some of the impasses created by the sort of longstanding culture of impunity in and around the Chicago Police Department was to internationalize it. And he thought specifically about the example of Malcolm X and the sort of advice that Malcolm X gave to younger activists in in terms of saying, don't treat civil rights issues as simply local matters. Deal with them as what they are, which is human rights issues. And use the international arena, and specifically Malcolm X's desire to put the United States on trial and to use the UN as a forum on which to kind of carry out this trial. And so it was in part his insight to say, if we're dealing with this sort of local impasse, we need to find ways to draw on our own legacy of struggle and use, for instance, the international arena as a way to kind of create some positive outcomes. And that was successful. That actually worked in many ways like Stan Willis had envisioned. And I think it's an important lesson that we can use not only for other activists in other cities who are looking to deal with issues of policing, but more generally in terms of how we deal with a whole host of issues that Black thought leadership is particularly important. And clearly in Chicago, the internationalist approach has not turned out to be a kind of diversion or international sideshow because Chicago leads the country in the battle for community control of police. Yes, and I think that that kind of long-running history of really the struggle around policing is something that we all have to learn from and really see the approach to taking international or seeking to internationalize the way in which we pursue these issues as not a zero-sum game. That there's a way in which we can use this as a tactic in a manner that can complement, that can help to really build on the advances that are made through other tactics, and that at the end of the day, it's in part an indication of how much some of the major breakthroughs that have, in some sense, been a result of this kind of international approach that's really helped expand the purview of the struggle around policing in Chicago and made it really a hotbed for this particular sort of struggle, such that this is one that's been waged not just in the streets or in debates taking place within city council, 
but the ways in which this is really a struggle that's played out in a whole host of forms that's made it such a multifaceted one and one where there is this amazing amount of momentum and there's a significant amount of headway, which doesn't mean that the struggle is won, right? Doesn't mean that Chicago has radically transformed the way in which policing is being done. In fact, there's so many problems that we face in terms of the levels of impunity that have enjoyed by police officers in Chicago and really the significant amount of work that still needs to be done. But at the end of the day, much of the advance that's been made over the past decade, decade and a half, has been due to the way in which activists with organizations like Black People Against Police Torture have worked so vigorously, and they've used not just one approach, but a a multiplicity of approaches that have bore this kind of fruit. And one of those approaches that's been quite successful in Chicago is in framing police torture within a reparations perspective. Yes, one that, again, has sort of touched on the longstanding legacy of struggle within Black history in terms of drawing on the idea of reparations, the long history in Chicago of the reparations movement, and taking up the issue of torture in a way that draws, again, on a sort of international framework. Because when you look at the language of human rights law, it isn't simply a question of saying torture is a crime and people who torture need to be convicted or held accountable, but also that there needs to be some sort of work done to repair the damage that was done. And again, this is an insight that comes out of the work of those within Black people against police torture to look at the language that's used on an international arena and force those in the United States to adhere to that kind of framework and say that it's not simply a question of saying those who who have carried out this torture need to be fired or those who are held behind bars because of these coercive confessions need to be freed, which is work that still needs to be done and is still ongoing, but that also there needs to be resources, there needs to be policies that are put in place to actually repair that damage. And that form of reparations has not just been providing some degree of monetary compensation, at most around $500,000 for those who were tortured and didn't receive some sort of settlement with the city, but also create a memorial, right, that publicly institutionalizes this particular really long-standing human rights abuse that took place in the city that creates some sort of center that's going to provide resources for torture victims and their families, that provide them an opportunity to heal, educational opportunities and employment opportunities for those who were tortured and their family members, and then perhaps most importantly, that actually puts the history of police torture in Chicago into the curriculum of the public schools and ensures that young people who are coming up through the Chicago public school system have an opportunity to learn about this history of the city and that it becomes part of the kind of common sense of not just the communities where this torture was carried out, but the city as a whole. And that that is just a small part of the process of trying to heal some of the damage that was caused as a result of this long-standing human rights abuse in the city. Well, reparations are part of that city council bill that was 
passed in 2014, but those are reparations that are applied to individual cases and should not be confused with Black reparations in general. Exactly. The reparations bill that was passed was specifically around police torture, and I've seen instances where concern was raised that the framework for that legislation was reparative in a way that could be confused for Black reparations or reparations for slavery. And I think less significant than those concerns is really the opportunity to kind of learn from the lessons, again, of groups like Black People Against Police Torture. We're in another election cycle where many people have discussed the question of reparations related to who is going to be elected for president and have talked about reparations purely as a domestic matter. And one of the things that I think might be worth adding to that conversation is the degree to which the question or the struggle for reparations here in the United States can be talked about not just as a domestic problem, but also, again, learning the lessons of what it might look like to take it to an international arena. And we're in the sixth year, I think, of the decade of people of African descent, which is an international framework to talk about circumstances related to people of African descent throughout the Western Hemisphere. And again, could potentially be another vehicle for talking about not just the circumstances that Black people face here in the United States, but particularly this question of reparations. And an imperfect one to some degree, but is another indication of how we can use some of those lessons that bore fruit in the case of Chicago and have been longstanding lessons from Paul Robeson and the Civil Rights Congress, from Malcolm X and the Organization of Afro-American Unity to think about how can the international arena be used to raise the issue of reparations and to do it specifically in this moment of the decade of people of African descent, where these questions of the issues plaguing Black people here in the United States are supposed to have a specific level of emphasis, a particular prioritization. And more broadly, as historian Gerald Horn says, to use the international arena to bring pressure to bear on our circumstances here in the United States is maybe how we can use some of the lessons of Chicago to continue to build forward and to re-energize some of the struggles that we're currently carrying out. That was Professor Toussaint Lozier speaking from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Black people are today dying in disproportionate numbers from COVID-19 just as they succumbed to HIV-AIDS at greater rates than whites two generations ago. Darius Boast is a professor of ethnic studies at the University of Utah and a co-editor of Frontiers, a journal of women's studies. Boast says white ignorance of actual conditions in black communities led to mass death from AIDS. He's written an article titled, Black, Lesbian, Feminist, Intellectuals, and the Struggle Against HIV-AIDS. First, Evelyn Hammonds, as a historian of science, trained also in engineering, was one of those early figures to write about, intellectuals to write about the effects that AIDS would have on African-American women. Um, She was doing this work even as she was a graduate student 
at Harvard. And in the 80s and during that time, she released several articles with leftist newspapers that were talking about how structural issues, the history of science, particularly on the history of science as it impacts African-Americans, it needed to be considered in the discourse around HIV-AIDS. She also was present in Boston at that time when a lot of the sort of policy and decisions were being made. And she sat in on many of those meetings and heard the negative characteristics that were being put out by doctors and those in charge about black women um, who she said were not even included in the category of women, but were considered prostitutes or drug addicts. And then there's Linda Villarosa, who was a journalist, um, is a professor of journalism, and has been reporting on HIV and AIDS since 1987. She was credited with writing the first article on AIDS in an ethnic magazine um, that was published in Essence in 87. And I wanted to highlight her work, too, because she um, is continuing to write about HIV and AIDS and a lot of other issues that impact Black communities around matters of health disparities. She wrote a really important article um, in 2017 um, about the hidden HIV epidemic that was targeting the South. And then there's Kathy Cohen, who came along a bit later, who, as a political scientist, decided to focus the attention on how AIDS as a political issue, because it was impacting the most marginal in Black communities, was preventing African Americans from mobilizing. And of course, she published a book in 1999, The Boundaries of Blackness, AIDS, and the Breakdown of Black Politics, that would become a touchstone in terms of thinking about AIDS in African American communities. And of course, now the United States and the world is in the midst of a pandemic, one that in the U.S. has killed far more proportionately black people and brown people than it has whites. But in this epidemic, the casualty rate is not seen as putting the onus on those who contract the disease in greater frequency. But that wasn't the case with AIDS. Right. AIDS was, I believe, distinct because, you know, the president did not talk about it until four years into the epidemic because of the stigma of sexual transmission, because the epidemiological narratives that blamed gay men, sex workers, as well as Africa and Haiti for bringing the epidemic to the United States. So the narrative of stigma that was attached to the particular communities that were affected meant that it was not treated as a disease that could impact anyone in the same way that COVID-19 is being discussed. And I think that stigma is the primary difference between the two pandemics and also the primary difference in the response to the two pandemics. The similarities, of course, come in that both run along the lines of social inequality. So this struggle that was waged primarily by Black people around AIDS has actually had a profound effect on the way medicine is done in the United States. Yes. I think that, you know, one of the things that they have, these Black, lesbian, feminist intellectuals have told us is that until we eliminate structural inequalities, that we're not going to eliminate the 
health disparities in medicine, particularly around black people. And I think that some of that rhetoric, particularly I would say around 2005, you know, with the bringing in intersectionality into the discourses of public health, the fact that public health now acknowledges that there is structural racism. And I think there was a recent letter and pushback from the CDC against its leadership about these issues of structural racism um, and needing to own up to it. So in certain ways, yes, their work has changed the way that people think about contemporary medicine because they do acknowledge that structural issues impact the way that certain communities are experiencing this disease. But at the same time, I think that the ongoing discourse around biologization, meaning that pre-existing conditions within Black communities that have an inadvertent effect of marking those bodies as stigmatized, again, means that there's still much more work to do within medical communities to understand how health pandemics and epidemics impact communities of color. And these existing conditions in Black and Brown America are actually legacies of past and current oppressions. So these are political issues. However, medical folks sometimes resist the politics of an issue, resist the political realities. Absolutely. And I think that's one thing that I think is important that Evelyn Hammond says is that you know the ability to name disease makes it a political issue. And I think that in her case, she was discussing how, and many have discussed how the transition from HIV and AIDS in 1996 to a, a quote-unquote manageable chronic illness has meant that the ongoing deaths and the disproportionate impact in communities of color often overlooked. And it also means that um, the way that we respond in terms of trying to find a vaccine versus management through medicine, it's different, right? And so I think that the shifts from 1996 also was, was a shift when it began to be seen as a disease of primarily white men, white gay men, to a disease of people of color and a disease of people who were not U.S. citizens. And that correlated with the devaluation of the disease and it's kind of uh, dwindling from public discourse. I think it has reemerged right now, but primarily through sort of medical prevention discourse, right? But I still think we have a long way to go in terms of thinking about how these communities, particularly Black LGBT communities, are impacted um, by HIV AIDS because um, it is still killing Black people in record numbers. Well, the bottom line is that these communities that are so impacted and these particular groups need to be further empowered with resources. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, the problem is big. I think one of the biggest things that folks will say right now is that, you know, the difference is made in the lives of people with HIV with something like housing, right? Housing is a major issue for those who are HIV positive, as well as, you know, eliminating stigma, both externally, but also within Black communities, because, you know, how does one survive a disease without the support of one's loved ones or chosen? Can issues of healthcare inequality in terms of what kind of access do certain communities have. Poverty is a big issue as well. And so, yes, the biggest issue that I think 
then and now for AIDS and COVID is the sort of grappling with the history of social inequality, right? The history of segregation, the history of discrimination within medical care. Um, and until that is fixed, dealt with, redressed, then these pandemics will continue to uh, disproportionately impact minority communities. With the coming to the forefront of Black Lives Matter, we see a much greater emphasis on the specific struggles of gay, lesbian, and trans people. How is this shaping the larger Black and progressive movements? I mean, I yes, Black Lives Matter, you know, initially a feminist and queer-led movement. I think one of the things that's important about it and to understand it is to note that they provide us with a way to sort of fill in the gap between the civil rights movement and the contemporary Black Lives Matter in the sense that there were feminist and queer movements that were happening. And some of that movement building was taking place with folks that I talk about in this article, but also with the gay cultural renaissance that I've written about in my book, right, that they brought other issues to the fore and they brought other intersections to the fore in Black struggles. But another concern that I think dovetails with um, Black Lives Matter and LGBT struggles is stigma, so continuing stigma around homophobia and transphobia that they were fighting against during the AIDS pandemic. I think that stigma or the ways in which African Americans, some of whom still don't believe that the struggles of LGBTQ people are part of the larger Black struggle is something that we have to continue to grapple with. And I think this movement is trying to do just that. But I think they were also crucial in the way that we have framed or the way that Black Lives Matter emerged as a movement that did not need a person to be an innocent victim or respectable victim for us to mobilize around them. And that, I think, comes out of the struggle against stigma and the struggle against those people who were considered not respectable. And so I think that they have done a lot. I think that they still have work to do. And I think that, you know, our ongoing belief that we can only operate on one single political axis of race continues to impede our progress in that, you know, the needs of LGBT people also need to be important to the movement. Part of the impetus for this article was to show, you know, another front in which queer people have been fighting in the struggle for racial justice, and that is on the front of healthcare. And part of what I wanted to do in this article was to demonstrate how sexuality and lesbian sexuality in particular has been critical to ongoing struggles against medical apartheid in this country. And so I think that the one thing that I would add is that the article demonstrates to us how significant and important the struggles of LGBT people have been to a broader movement um, and how they've long been contributing to movements for social justice and for health injustice in particular. That was author and educator Darius Boast. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein grew up in working class East Los Angeles, but she's now a theoretical physicist as well as a feminist theorist at the University of New Hampshire. Dr. Prescott-Weinstein firmly believes that everyone has the right to know the universe. We asked her if she agrees that a physicist 
is one who tries to find out how what is came to be. Wow, I really like what you said about how what it is came to be. That's a really poetic way of putting it. Yes, my background and training is as a theoretical cosmologist. I guess I could also say that other terms that could be appropriate, I do particle physics and I also do things that relate to astrophysics. So sometimes I say I'm a particle cosmologist or a particle astrophysicist. Now, I'm sure you do what you do because your curiosity about what is and why it is. But the study of science in the United States, anywhere in the world, takes place in a political economic background. And science is big money. Science is also big warfare. That's certainly true that there are aspects of science that plug into the military-industrial complex, and it's something that I have actively worked not to be a part of. But, you know, we all are somehow plugged into capitalism, even if we don't necessarily agree with it. And so we're all just, you know, trying to do the best we can from the position we're in. Yes, because the political forces that be take an interest in science for their own reasons, which have to do with power and so-called security. They take an interest in scientists, even if the scientists don't share their ambitions and worldviews. That's definitely true. I think Scientists always have the option of thinking about what they're working on and what the implications of their work are, right? So, you know, to choose a popular example, the Manhattan Project, nobody who was working on that was confused about what they were doing. And there are stories that I've heard about Manhattan Project scientists after the project was over, assigning problems to their students that were related to the development of the hydrogen bomb and not telling their students why they were working on the problem. So just saying, solve this mathematical equation, and I'm not going to tell you why. And I think the task for the scientist, for the student, no matter what stage you're at, whether you have a PhD or you're working on your PhD, is to ask, what am I doing and why? And I think that that's the scientific approach, that you should always be asking why, including about what the purpose of your work is. Now, you, of course, are a noted scientist and a popularizer of science, which is another story. And you also take part in encouraging women and minorities uh, to get involved in science and technology, engineering and math. It's uh, popularly called the STEM disciplines. But You've had some ambivalence about how much pressure should be put on young people to get involved in STEM just because, well, it's the thing nowadays. That's definitely true. I think there are a lot of big pushes about um, what people call EDI or DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, to increase the number of people from underrepresented groups. So by that, I mean white women people of color who are traditionally marginalized in the sciences, indigenous peoples, um, to increase their participation in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. But I think that the intention behind bringing people into the field matters as much as the fact of people being in the field. Sometimes it's articulated as something that's necessary for the national interest, that we need a homegrown 
science workforce in order to compete with, for example, China, I think is the popular and quote monster nation that we have to, you know, uh, challenge and be in competition with. I don't see it that way. And I also don't like the idea of articulating underrepresented minority people, particularly black people, as having value because of the service that we provide to the nation. I think that there were already a few hundred years of placing value on black lives in economic terms. And that that can't be how we think about why it is useful and necessary for black people to be present in science. I'll just talk about black folks. That's my primary community. Um, but I think that this would apply elsewhere. Um, I think black curiosity matters because black lives matter and being curious is part of being human. So for me, my interest in encouraging black folks to go into science is that I want black folks to live with joy in their curiosity. That's, that's my primary concern. That said, going into science right now, no matter what field you choose, there's a good chance that you will be a barrier breaker at some point in your career, the first person in your department to earn that degree, the first faculty member in your department, the first one in your workplace. And that is, being a barrier breaker is a difficult life to lead. So I think that we need to be thoughtful about pressuring people to play those roles because you only get one life to live. Is that the role you want to play with your life? That's a, I think that's a personal question and it's okay for people to ask that question and say, you know what, I would rather do something else. Well, in addition to those political considerations, you say that STEM communities, that is, people who are involved with those sciences, are often wildly hostile and not a very pleasant group to be around if you're black, brown, or female. It's definitely true. I mean, there have been a lot of reports in the press about sexual harassment and sexual conduct that women experience. A recent study that was led by anthropologist Kate Clancy at University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign found that there were significantly high rates of gender-based harassment, discrimination, sexual misconduct within planetary science and astronomy, and that women of color experienced it at higher rates than white women did. So it's particularly bad, I think, if you're a woman of color. And if you're a woman of color, you're obviously not just dealing with things that are going to affect white women too. You're also dealing with things that are going to affect men of color. So you're dealing with racism. If you're an immigrant, you're dealing with xenophobia. There are various other things that women of color have to deal with that white women don't have to deal with. And, you know, men of color also have to deal with things that white women and white men don't have to deal with. And so there's challenges of racism, sexism, et cetera. Yes, you know, science is part of society and those problems from society follow us into the classroom, into the lab, into the office. I would guess that these people that you describe as wildly hostile would think that you and folks who criticize them, as you do, are ungrateful for the privileges that have been bestowed on you and for being allowed to associate uh, with other physicists and such. Yeah, I'm sure there are people who feel that way. I think, you know, thinking about you know, whether I should be grateful, that's extraordinarily condescending, right? Should I be grateful to be treated equally like a human? No, I think that that should be my baseline. That should be my expectation. I'm entitled to be treated like a human being. 
I'm entitled to a workplace where I will not be sexually harassed. I am entitled to scientific community, a professional community, where I don't have to worry about being assaulted by a colleague. These are all things, these are, these are from, from my point of view, issues of human rights. So I'm entitled to my human rights. That's not something that, you know, some person on high hands down to me. And I, I do think that you're right, that one of the problems is, is that some people feel that, you know, I should just be grateful that I was allowed into the room at all. But the question is, why are some people getting to play gatekeepers? And why do those people typically come from one community and not another? Before young people even get a chance to decide whether they want to hang with groups like uh, you work with, they are practically prevented from entering fields like the one that you practice by inadequate educations due to institutional racism. I definitely think that that's a factor. Um, You know, racism, systemic racism and white supremacy affect us on all levels. I grew up in East Los Angeles, which is a primarily um, Mexican and Central American immigrant um, and descendant of immigrant community. And I read recently about a battery factory that was not far from my house that was so poisonous that it poisoned the groundwater and the air. And pretty much every child that was born over the last few decades, including me, if their mother was drinking water from the faucet during the pregnancy, we were all exposed to lead in utero, like during the pregnancy. And so before we're even born, we're already facing barriers to our fully living our humanity from fully being treated like we are human. And certainly there are, there are various barriers that happen once we get into the K-12 education system. That said, research shows that underrepresented minority groups like Black, Latinx, and Native American and Pacific Islander Indigenous people come into college with high rates of interest in studying science, technology, engineering, and math. And something happens while they are in college that leads to people departing from the field. So, you know, some of the traditional lore in the physics community is it's not our fault. Blame the high schools, blame the middle schools, blame the elementary schools. But it is, in fact, the case that these students are interested, and it's when they get to our university classrooms that things go wrong for them. I'm sure that you're under lots of pressures to behave like a role model, but are you comfortable with playing that role as a role model? You know, it's funny. I I think I don't think a ton about my comfort level with it because I don't have a choice about it, right? It is definitely the case that when I was graduating from high school, I was leaving East LA to go to Harvard College. And I should say one of the reasons I was going to Harvard is because I couldn't afford any of the University of California campuses. And I left East LA thinking, I want to come home with a PhD in my hand so that people can see that folks from East LA can do this, that Black women can do this. And so in that sense, I think I always wanted to be an inspiration. I think that that, because I wanted to be something that I didn't have. I didn't know about Black women in physics or astronomy when I was in high school. So I definitely was conscious of wanting to represent in that way. But I think also when I was 17 and going off to college, I didn't really understand what that meant or how it would feel. 
it's you're right it's an extraordinary amount of pressure people are constantly watching me to see if i said the right thing i get asked to mentor a lot and you know i have the same number of hours in the day as everybody else does but i'm asked to squeeze a lot more out of that day and i will say that you know one of the complexities that i've discovered about being in this position is that you know, we as a community, Black folk, we have so many things that we want out of life, just like any other community. But we are squeezed in terms of accessing resources to support us in getting those things. And so that means, you know, there are fewer Black women faculty. There are just fewer Black faculty for students to come to with their problems, with their concerns. And every student still, you know, they need like 30 minutes. But if I give every single person who's asking 30 minutes of me 30 minutes, I don't have any time to get the things that I want out of life, out of my day. And people don't always take too kindly to me saying no, or me saying, yes, but I'm not going to do it in the way that you asked. And I think people sometimes interpret that as me saying I don't care, or I'm not interested, or I don't want to support them. But I really, I do have to choose myself sometimes too. I think we need to avoid a situation where people in my position end up getting treated like mammies or service mules for the community. Well, yes, and if one takes on the role of role model, one has a certain political responsibility for encouraging people to get into science, let's say physics, which could also be encouraging them to get on a path to the military-industrial complex. Yes, I think that this is something that I've tried to talk more openly about, and it's something that I will address, I think, more deeply in my forthcoming book, The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space Time, and Dreams Deferred, which is, it's easy to say I support Black physicists and I support Black scientists, But I do think it's important to say what I support them doing and what I have concerns about them doing. Um, That I don't particularly support people going off and doing weapons development. That's That's not my ministry. You know, I understand that folks also need to make a living, but I think people really need to dig deeply and ask themselves, is this what I want to make a living doing? And I think that we also have examples. You look at the life of J. Robert Oppenheimer, And I think Oppenheimer was permanently damaged and traumatized by his participation in the Manhattan Project. He and many other physicists had immense regrets about their participation in it. So I think sometimes when, as as Black folks, we say to ourselves, okay, but I don't have the same freedom to make choices as white people do. And that's absolutely true. We do not have the same array of options because we are facing, we are living under the forces of white supremacy and we are not benefiting. as as a community and on the whole from white supremacy. But it is still the case that there are many choices available to us within those restrictions of who we are going to be in the world and what our relationship to the world is going to be and how we are going to be in relation to it. And I want to encourage people to constantly think about what does it mean to be in good relations with my community and to be in good relations with the idea of justice. I really wish that there was more science in the black press, (laughs) but I really think that we need to rethink 
the idea that science is something that gets published and discussed in publications that are primarily read by white people and think about what would it mean to have these conversations with black scientists, not just about what our political gains are, but about our actual science. So for example, I would be happy to talk with you more about what exactly it is that I do as a scientist. Um, I know that other black scientists in my circle of friends feel really strongly about this, that we actually want more opportunities to actually speak directly to black people about science in the black press rather than just having to go through Scientific American. I really love my, doing my column at New Scientist. I think my editors are great, but I would also be happy to write about it for Essence Magazine, you know? So I, I think that we as a community can also rethink how do we reinforce the idea that science is a thing that white people do or science is a thing that non-black people do. And that's it for this edition of Black Agenda Radio. Be sure to visit us at blackagendareport.com where you will find a new and provocative issue each Wednesday. That's www.blackagendareport.com. It's the place for news, commentary, and analysis from the black left. I'm Nellie Bailey along with my co-host Glenn Ford. Our thanks to the good people at the Progressive Radio Network.